Turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. If you don't happen to have a Bible with you this morning, it's always useful to have one open in front of you as we study God's Word together. So you can grab one of the chairback Bibles that should be nearby you, and you'll find this morning's text on page 958. One of my children asked me this morning, Daddy, why are we not preaching through Exodus today? And I suppose perhaps if you haven't been with us a number of weeks, you could be wondering the same question yourselves as we spent so many months working through the second book in God's Word, and we have come all the way to chapter 31, which Lord willing will resume next week, but for reasons I trust will be clear enough in a few minutes, we want to come to 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17 through 34, uh, which is the longest and most substantial teaching on the Lord's Supper you're going to find in all of the Bible. So let me read those verses for us, and then pray for God's blessing on our text, and we'll begin together. So let's hear now as God speaks to us, once again through His Word. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you, in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. And when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. And when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands together. Let's pray once again. Our Father, we do thank you for your mercy and grace towards us. That you have shown us your love in Jesus Christ, and even now, that you have summoned us to your banqueting table where your banner over us is love. So give us ears to hear, give us hearts that respond with truthfulness, with repentance. Lord, as you summon us to your table, we want to come with hearts of purity, and so purify us by your word and spirit this morning. Uh, Do give us great earnestness and eagerness as we hear. That you be glorified in our lives. Give me boldness and clarity to preach as you say I must. And we do pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We may be seated. 
the old Presbyterian pattern of the Lord's Supper was called something of a communion season. It tended to happen in most Presbyterian churches, for most of Presbyterian history at least. Uh, communion did twice a year. Sometimes you would have innovations and novelties in certain churches that would find a congregation partaking of the Lord's Supper quarterly. But in the ordinary main of Presbyterian history, you'd have the Lord's Supper administered just twice a year. And so when the Lord's Supper was administered, it became this uh, relatively high-frequented spiritual affair. So what would happen is on a Sunday before the Lord's Supper was administered, uh, it would be announced from the pastor, the teacher there at the congregation uh, that we're going to take the Lord's Supper next week, next Lord's Day. And that would usher in a week-long uh, festival of spiritual activity and preparation. So you begin to prepare your heart on, on Monday and, and Tuesday and Wednesday. Then on Thursday, it was a fast day, and you had two fast day services that were preparing you for the supper, that were readying you for repentance. And then on Friday and Saturday, you had another time where each day came with worship services that were readying your heart to receive the supper. And then on the morning of the administration of the elements, everyone would gather into the church meeting room, and then a sermon would be given that was typically called the action sermon. And the action sermon was, of course, meant for people to act, and it was to act in faith and repentance, uh, hearing once again Christ's loving welcome that he gives to weary sinners. And in the older Presbyterian model, what would then happen after the action sermon, you would have the table fenced, and then people were invited to come forward to take the elements. But in that model, people came forward to sit at actual tables at the front of the room, and there was probably only five or six, depending on the size of the table that could get around. And then before each element was then administered at that individual table, another short sermon was given. And so you can understand why even in a church of, of a modest size, distribution of the elements would take something like four hours. I know of a pastor who would normally take seven to eight hours to administer the Lord's Supper on that Sunday. And then once the elements were administered, the pastor would come back up and preach another sermon. And this was a sermon that was meant to encourage people to be faithful to what they just received, to walk in holiness as the supper binds them to the Lord. And then the next day, which is Monday, so now we're eight days on from when it was first announced. That day was counted as a day of thanksgiving. And then there was an, another worship service that corresponded to the gratitude of having received the Lord's Supper on the previous day. Now, if you think of all that activity and relative infrequency of taking the Lord's Supper, you should ask a question, uh, what were potential dangers does such a pattern bring to a church? And we've often said, is if you look at such a pattern, the infrequency and all of the fervency that belongs to a communion season uh, tends to create this kind of unwise and unrealistic pattern of, of festivity in the Christian life where you're always just burning emotionally from one emotional high and spiritual revival to, to the next. And maybe you need one about every three or four months and then it'll sustain you before you uh, need it again. Now those of you that have been with us at Redeemer for any length of time know that we take the Lord's Supper weekly. But you should also ask the same question. What potential dangers might come from taking the Lord's Supper Weekly. And we would often say, and should say, that probably the central danger that belongs to such frequent communion, such regular feasting at God's table, is what we might call ritualism. 
Because you might know as well as I do, the Christian life has these ordinary rhythms, doesn't it? Beginning and ending each day with God. Constant communion with Christ through His Word. But we can come to the preaching, the reading, the praying, the singing, the, the seeing of God's Word in worship, and come so not understanding exactly what we are doing. Uh, we can have empty hearts that therefore give God empty offerings. We can have empty minds that therefore come to commune with God with emptiness as well. We can fulfill that old prophecy, can't we? That their mouths draw near to me, their lips praise me, but their hearts are far from me. That's all we're doing in taking a pause this morning in our ongoing study of Exodus is I want to ensure as we come together, uh, we're coming together with devotion in our hearts. That means we're not just going before the motions when we receive the Lord's Supper. You know, kids, you might have noticed when I was reading the passage, verse 17 through 34 of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, five times Paul talks about coming together. And if my calculations are correct, this is the first time in 434 days our church has all come together to take the Lord's Supper. And so it seems appropriate, doesn't it, to take a pause and think about what it means to rightly, to faithfully, to lovingly come together to take the Lord's Supper. Supper, so that we don't come with empty ritualistic hearts that thus emptily partake of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, which brings a danger of which we'll see soon enough. So our theme this morning together is seven words about the supper. So I've got seven points you want to see along the way. And we're not going to, of course, be able to say everything that we could about this passage. I just want to highlight the several, seven essential things. Nor will we be able to say everything that you've possibly wondered about the Lord's Supper or communion on the way. But I simply want to put these seven words before your heart so that you would understand what it is that is happening. Or certainly what ought to happen when God's people come to his table. So word number one, the Lord's Supper and division. Look at verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Now, that's a striking change in Paul's tone, how he began the chapter. If you just glance over to chapter 11, verse 2, notice what he says. Now, I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions, even as I delivered them to you. So, Paul has just said, well, I'm commending you. And then a few paragraphs later, he's saying, I am not commending you. So what's the reason for the change in tone? Of course, the reason is division. It is division. Look at verse 18 as he continues. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. Now, and if you know anything about the letter to the church there at Corinth... Uh, Paul even starts off the letter in chapter 1 after greetings and salutations. He gives them his concern that they're a divided congregation. Uh, generally speaking, some in the church evidently are saying, well, I follow Paul. And others are saying, I follow Cephas. Yet others, I follow Apollos. And some are saying, no creed but Christ. I follow Jesus himself. But what Paul's doing now, he's moving from division generally to division specifically as they come to the Lord's Supper. And it's what some scholars have called social snobbery taking place there at Corinth. Because if you scan your eyes through the next few verses, it seems that there are, in many ways, two groups of people in the church. You have the haves and the have-nots. Probably better said, you have the wealthy and the poor. 
and the church. And what would happen normally at that time in the first century, the Lord's Supper was given in the context of an actual meal. And so it seems as though the wealthy members of the church were gathering early on in that service. They were bringing this well-to-do food from their houses, and they were either eating all of their food before the poorer congregation could arrive, therefore signaling their virtue, certainly their rich wealth at the same time. Or if the poor people were arriving, this is probably better what was happening. The poor people were arriving, but the wealthy people weren't sharing the food with them, uh, signaling, again, their wealth against their poverty. So a meal that was meant to be given about Jesus' selfless sacrifice has just become this meal about selfishness going on in the life of the church. And you see in verse 18 to 19, Paul's not surprised that it's happening. Look at what he says. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. It was not too far into March of 2020, so 14 months or so ago, that I wrote a longish letter to our church officers that I titled Coronavirus Miscellanies. And I had this section that was titled A Litmus Test. I went back and looked through it earlier this week. And I said this about the coming difficulty. I said, affliction uncovers the heart's true nature. And so the outbreak will reveal our church's strengths and weaknesses. God has handed us a litmus test of our maturity We will see some members display a surprising amount of faith and service, while others will show disheartening distrust of leadership and inability to promote unity. And we found that to be true. And that's not because it was a prophetic statement, as much as it's just a simple observation in how Scripture says it ordinarily goes. Because you see, Paul here is saying there's division in the church. And he even says there's this divine imperative. There must be division in the church. That division shows who is genuine. And all of us know that to be true, don't we? That it's in the crisis that you see the true character actually arrive. It's in the hardship that you can see whether or not someone has any hope in Jesus Christ. And so amidst the difficulty, amidst the affliction there at Corinth, Paul is saying it's actually proving to show which among you are genuine followers of Jesus Christ. Which, which among you are truly taking the gospel into your heart? And so I wonder, even if you look back on the previous 12 months of life, not only in our context and within a pandemic, but perhaps even here at Redeemer Presbyterian Church, what did that struggle reveal about your soul? Did you find it easy to commune and have peace with those who thought differently than you? That you had the mind of Christ who considered others as better than yourselves? Or perhaps you found it very difficult to see any sort of truth and wisdom in an opposing perspective. The Lord's Supper and division brings us to word number two, the Lord's Supper and reception. Look at verse 23. Paul says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. So what he's telling the church at Corinth here is that this is, this is truth they've received. Their sin at the supper is not due to ignorance. You've heard the truth, Paul says. Of course, this is not truth. It comes through Paul himself. Paul is saying that God gave it to me, and I have given it to you. This is a meal of received truth. 
And so students, perhaps a simple way to think about it, in a genuine reality, when you take the elements of the Lord's Supper into your hands, and students, when you take those elements even into your mouth, you are receiving, you are bearing, you are feasting upon truth that you've received. And I wonder if you are faithful with truth you receive here in our church every single week. So you have division, you have Reception, but what is the truth that they've received, at least at its heart? That's our third word, substitution. Look at verse 23 and 24. Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. In the mid-17th century, the leader of the Republican army there in Britain's or England's civil war was a man named Oliver Cromwell, who would eventually rise to the title of Lord Protector of England. And there was on occasion where one of his soldiers had committed a crime, and Cromwell sentenced him to execution. They said, this man must be killed when the curfew bell rings at night. And so the hours went by, the minutes were rapidly approaching, no doubt this man staring down the end of his life. But mysteriously, the bell didn't ring that night. And so Cromwell sent his officials to investigate what was going on with the bell. And what they discovered was this condemned man's fiancée had snuck into the belfry and had clung to the bell's clapper all night long to make sure that it wouldn't ring out a sentence of death upon her loved one. And so she was summoned before Cromwell to give an account for her actions. And she simply just showed him her hands that were bloodied and bruised. And Cromwell said, because of your love and your sacrifice, he will live. The curfew bell will not ring tonight. Uh, there's a central reality in the gospel that we call substitution. It's underscored in this phrase in our passage of, his body was broken for you. And of course, this woman of old, she saved the life of another through hands that were bloodied, Hands that were bruised, but these were hands that lived. But Jesus Christ, who is the lover of sinners, he takes the place of sinners and saves them by giving his hands to be bloodied, his hands to be bruised, even unto death, in the place of his people. And so substitution, it really is, it's the citadel of the gospel truth. That all of you, if you know the reality of Scripture, have been born into sin. Therefore, you, you deserve God's punishment, His justice, His wrath poured out upon you. And there's absolutely nothing you could do to make it right with God. Therefore, the only way to be made right with God is someone has to make you right with God. Someone has to stand in your place. What you need, children, is a substitute. And the Bible tells us that the substitute's name is Jesus Christ, that if you turn from your sin and trust in Him. His body was broken for you. His life was taken for you. So on that day of final judgment to come, you could be summoned before the Father's courtroom, and the devil might stand next to you and say, look at all the lust. Look at all the impurity, the anger, the hatred, the complaining, the impatience, the fears and doubts. Condemn that person. And Jesus stands up and says, no, I died for that person. My righteousness is his. My holiness is hers. 
I wonder if you have a substitute. It's about division, reception, substitution. You see also it's about commemoration. Notice how verse 24 continues into verse 25. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. You of course don't have to be a a savvy reader of scripture to know that Satan has often tempted God's people to forget God. That's why when Moses was standing on the precipice of the promised land, promised land that he wouldn't enter, and nevertheless preaching his final sermon to God's chosen people in Deuteronomy chapter 8, that he says, take care lest you forget the Lord your God. That's all the prophets come along, the Psalms sing forth, and call God's people to not forget Yahweh, to continue to remember his works, to ponder his ways, to meditate on his greatness. Yet by the time Jeremiah shows up, Yahweh puts words in his mouth that simply says they have perverted their ways and they have forgotten the Lord their God. So the epitaph that you could put on Israel's tombstone of their apostasy, they soon forgot. And God knows, doesn't he, that his people still in the new covenant age often forget Jesus. That's why he's given us, hasn't he, this this meal to help us remember him. It's not just that we remember him, but to let us know that he remembers us. I've done enough marriage counseling throughout my ministry to know a lot of times there's no matter the symptomatic issues that you're working through and talking about there are a number of core things that tend to lie at the heart of marital struggles and relationship difficulty and I can't tell you the number of times where you're speaking with a couple and really what seems to lie at the core is one spouse is saying to the other do you still love me Because everything in your life doesn't seem to communicate that. Your words and actions seem to communicate the opposite. I mean, you might be in here today and have been following the Lord Jesus Christ for a number of years, yet perhaps because of your own sin, perhaps because of your assaulted conscience by the devil, you too are wondering, does Jesus love me? Lord, do you love me? And what does he do at the supper but put into your hands tokens of his love? That as you take the bread and as you take the cup, what he's telling you, which is why all the old divines would use language from the Song of Songs when talking about the Lord's Supper. He's brought me to his banqueting table. And his banner over me is love. These are tokens of God's love for you. Remember that he loves his children, his people, Fifth word is proclamation. You see verse 26. As often as you eat this bread and and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. The word there for proclaim, it's an ordinary word in the New Testament for preaching. So kids, you may not have realized this before, but what Paul is saying here in part is that when you partake of the Lord's Supper, you all become preachers of Jesus Christ. That as you raise the elements, as you take the elements, as you feast upon these elements, you're, you're preaching a gospel sermon that he has died. I just asked throughout the Old Testament with the Passover meal that marked off Israel's life that they too would remember their redemption. They, they preached a message, didn't they, there at the Passover meal? That they've been redeemed by the blood of a lamb. 
And it's here at this meal that we, we preach and proclaim the good news that we too have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. But it's not just verse 26 about proclamation. It's about number six, anticipation. You see the end? You proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. As the summer months are essentially upon us at this point, children, I wonder if any of you are maybe preparing to go on vacation in the coming weeks, perhaps to a special place that has you uniquely excited. And children, if you're anything like my children, on the night before you go on vacation, you might be so excited and so full of anticipation that you find it hard to go to sleep. A kind of anticipation belongs to the Lord's Supper. That when you come to this meal, it's stirring up within you by the work of the Spirit and by Christ's even presence in the Supper, this anticipation for His coming arrival. Because you might remember, He instituted this meal to His disciples and said, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine again until I drink it with you in the kingdom of heaven. So if you're, if you're struggling to look forward to Christ's return, if you seem that your soul, or it seems that your soul has this small anticipation, earnest longing and yearning for Jesus Christ, well, you come to the table because it's a meal of anticipation. Seventhly, finally, the Lord's Supper and examination, verse 27 and 28. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. I suppose it's necessary for some of you even to recognize that these words of examination are spoken to church members, uh, professing Christians. The, the word examine, it was you know, normally used of metals that you would test out the metal's purity to see what truly is there. And Paul is saying that you, that you must come to this table, the table to which God summons you with a heart of examination, lest you eat or drink judgment on yourself. You notice verse 29 says, For if you come without discerning the body, this person eats and drinks judgment on himself. And if you've been at Redeemer for any length of time, perhaps you've noticed how we always encourage you before you come to the table to pray a prayer of examination. Students, children even, you may have wondered, what exactly does that look like to examine my heart before I come and take of these elements? Well, there are a variety of different ways in which I could have you think about that this morning. One simple metaphor that I might give you is thinking about a bride getting ready to meet the groom. As in a bride often put on the dress, stare into the mirror, want to make sure that the dress is appropriate for the occasion, wanting to make sure that the dress is going to please the bridegroom? Isn't that the exact same thing that we're meant to do before we come to the Lord's Supper, that we, His bride, are meant to examine our dress as we come to meet with Him? Are we clothed in His righteousness? Have we put on by faith alone His holiness that we might please Him when we meet with Him? So that's why, of course, when you come to the table, you must examine yourself of your faith in Jesus Christ, your repentance towards Him, your partaking of His blessings and benefits, your willingness to obey the promises and obligations made to you in His covenant of grace, your desire to stand up and be counted as one of God's people. You must examine your heart. So these then are seven words, aren't they? Simple words about the supper, division, reception, 
substitution, commemoration, proclamation, anticipation, and examination. And the world's history often hinges on simple words, doesn't it? You might remember in the Garden of Eden, when Satan slithers up to Eve, he speaks into her ear, that satanic lie, take and eat. Of course, take and eat what doesn't belong to you. And of course, she took and ate. She gave it to Adam, and he also took and ate. And ever since, mankind has been plunged from birth into sin. And then it was many years later, wasn't it, in another garden. Uh, Jesus heard somewhat similar words, didn't he? But these words didn't come from Satan himself. These words came from the Father, take and drink. And Jesus, out of his love and willingness, he, he drank the cup of God's divine wrath to the very bottom at the cursed cross of Calvary. And he drank it all the way so he might say to you in the supper, take and eat of me. Take and drink of me. It's on such simple words that even the history of one soul can turn. So as we begin to close, what I want to do is help you see a couple of things that regular feasting at the Lord's table ought to do within a church like ours. Three things, and then we'll be done. Number one, regular feasting at the table fuels a humble people. A humble people. We come empty-handed, don't we, to this table that he might fill us to the brim with his goodness, grace, and glory. Of course, it's always one of the divine ironies of our own theological heritage that it's those who think that they have the forms right, i.e. weekly communion, that tend to be the least humble people around. When in reality, weekly feasting upon the supper ought to promote a profound humility in our midst. So, of course, it promotes and fuels a humble people. Number two, a hopeful people. A hopeful people. In the midst of hardship, do you find Christ sustaining you in hope? Because you know where the end is going. This, of course, is proclaiming a death that isn't the end. This is proclaiming a death that is the end that brings a new beginning. Number three, it's not just a humble people. It's not just a hopeful people. Of course, it's a, it's a grateful people. That's why he's actually said in the previous chapter, chapter 10, verse 16 and 17, that when we take these elements, this is the cup of blessing, which we could translate also as the, the cup of thanksgiving. And so, kids, you want to recognize, and students, the same thing, too, that God's grace to you is, is a weekly. Of course, it's daily grace, but corporately speaking, it's a weekly grace. Where the world in which we live, they only get one Easter. We get Easter every Sunday. Where the country in which we live, they only get Thanksgiving once a year. We get Thanksgiving every Sunday, don't we? As we come to see the Lord Jesus Christ represented here at the table. So it's a humble people, it's a hopeful people, it's a grateful people that is meant to grow from the supper. Of course, it's a meal, isn't it? That's given then to people like you and me. I read of one occasion during a communion season of which I spoke at the beginning, where this erratic and somewhat eccentric Scottish Presbyterian theologian named John Duncan was serving the supper. He was a man that was full of love for Christ. He was a man that was full of oddities and pithy statements. And, uh, he was serving the elements around the table uh, one Sunday afternoon. And he noticed that one of the people there sitting at, sitting at his table was this woman who was bathed in tears. And she let the bread pass by. And then, of course, he began to speak his sermon related to the cup. And 
the cup goes around and she, still bathed in tears, lets the cup pass by. And as only Rabbi Duncan could do, he did something that was rather outrageous for the Scottish culture of the time. He got up, he grabbed the cup, he went over to her and put it in her hands. And he said, take it, woman. It is for sinners. And of course, may these seven words about the supper call to you today in the same way. Take him, friend. Christ is for sinners. Let's pray together. Father, we do ask that you would help us by your word and spirit as we come each week to communion with you at your table to have always a heart of awareness and earnestness, a soul that's full of love and faith as we want to meet with you, to commune with you, to have fellowship with you, our risen Savior by your body and your blood. So we pray that you would even strengthen us now as we prepare to come to your table, that you might nourish us, that you might prepare us to receive your many benefits and blessings. We do pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.